0: Let's sit, let's learn, let's evolve, let's talk. No more whispering in our minds. Today is
1: Let's Talk Arts with your host, Rachel Sara. Today I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we are broadcasting, pay my respects to Elders past and present, and extend that welcome to all mob who are listening. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Let's Talk Black Arts. I am enjoying myself thoroughly. I'm glad to be back this year. And this week we are joined by another incredible guest. Now, this person is an author. And for me personally, I'm always mesmerized by authors. I have no idea how they can sit down undisturbed and write a whole book. But this week we are joined by Charlene Alsop. How are you, sis? I, first of all, did not sit down and just write a whole book. Like I also
0: hear I worship people like that. But I am in that weird place of being so excited and absolutely terrified prior to the launch. I I think that's normal, right? Yep, definitely. That's where I'm at.
1: I love that. Now we start every show with the same question, who your mob is and where you grew up.
0: I am from the Olive Mob. Uh, far northern New South Wales, Bundjalung country. I was born in Casino and most of my mob are born kind of graft in Casino,
1: Kyogle area. I love that. I love hearing the very varied guests and locations. I think it's such a reminder that Australia is so diverse and everywhere is Aboriginal land. And I think that's the exciting thing about interviewing you because this book is fiction However, it's based on a lot of very familiar themes that a lot of mob would be exposed to or have memory of in different ways. But before we get into the book, let's hear a bit more about you. What made you become a writer? I hit a crossroads in my early 40s,
0: probably not a new story. Um, Let me rewind. At 14, I was a protest writer. And I would write various letters to the editor of the Northern Star. He published six to eight of them. They were always about injustice, inequity, um, violence on television. Punky Brewster was usually Mm -hmm. the culprit. Um, So I always had that passion for writing and just speaking out about things that captured me. But yeah, in the early 40s, I was at a crossroads and ended up going back to study unexpectedly and discovered a deep love for literature and Mm -hmm. creative writing felt like I was born to it and the novel was really born out of one of those university assignments that I couldn't let go of
1: I love that and so prior to that moment going back to study were you a big reader of books huge reader yep dabbler of writing just for myself Mm -hmm. and friends um but yeah not much of a writer so let's talk about the moment in that university subject. What was it that made you think, okay, this is, this is connecting with me?
0: We had to write a synopsis and a first chapter of a novel. And so I imagined this fictional dystopian world where technology had completely come undone out of a global
1: pandemic. This was 2018. Um... This- did you do COVID to us did you write it into existence if,
0: if only I had such power to make my writing come
1: to reality into the world I mean sorry to interrupt but could you write your next book where a girl Rachel Sarah wins the lottery, lottery and um yeah that would be lovely thank you you might be surprised to know that there's a few people in line ahead of me right? I'm not surprised
0: go on sis sorry <laughs> And I guess so I crafted that and it was Scarlet Friday that I just couldn't let go of. There was something absolutely fascinating about her and her point of view that I couldn't let go of. And so I just kept writing little scenes and little vignettes, not at all knowing what I was really doing, Mm. but I couldn't let go of her. It was her
1: that captured me and pulled me forward Mm. so that's obviously a huge pull into writing now a lot of the themes and we can talk about them a bit more but there is this whole actually no let's go straight into it can you tell me uh, before I kind of make my own assumptions I want to hear it first from you can you tell us a little bit more about this debut novel
0: I would also say that I'm way more interested in what my readers would describe it as than what I have to describe (laughs) it as. Um, But I guess for me, I feel like it is this big, rollicking, illegal adventure Mm. um, that Scarlett sets out upon. She's a truth teller. She's living in London when the technology that holds the whole world together comes undone. Mm. And after a stranger befriends her, they illegally, you know, travel the world to get home to Australia. But each of them have very different motives, not all known to the other. Um, And back home, Scarlett then has to face up to her own history Mm. and decide what truth she tells
1: in the end.
0: I think that's a pretty good one minute pitch.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's making me want to know more, which is excellent. You can tell you're a writer because you've just grabbed all of our attention. So the thing that I love about this book is that it is a fiction, like I mentioned. But a lot of the themes that you're exploring, even in 2018, before a pandemic has even happened, which I'm questioning you anyway, but there are a lot of themes that are so real and based off experiences of First Nations people. And Anna, our producer, and I were talking offline things like the fact that AAA is very close to Boundary Street, which was obviously used back in the day to keep Aboriginal people out after dark. So there's this whole idea of surveillance in real life. But you're bringing this into a fictional book that I personally think a lot of people are going to be either interested in it because it's reflecting their lived experience and then I think there's going to be a lot of readers that are actually going to be exposed to a very real history of Australia without it being a non-fiction book tell us like was it always in your mind to be a fiction book
0: yes it was always going to be fiction because the weight of responsibility of telling true stories as an Aboriginal person is too heavy mm. for me. And yet, hypocritically, <laughs> the book is also filled with actual real life true stories. Mm. Um, but I don't, I want to reveal and conceal that with my own power as yeah. to what's true and what's not true. But I think the most important thing about it being fiction is that a story doesn't have to have happened to be powerful. Mm. And if you don't believe me, just go and pick up an old history book that a white Australian man's written, mm. and you'll discover that fiction's been very powerful mm. at telling stories and shaping identities and ideologies in Australia. And I think it was when that struck me for the first time that I started to understand what I was doing mm. in writing the book. That I was, my book is no more or less fiction. Mm. than a short history of Australia that Scarlet writes over the top of, which is a yeah. real book published by a real professor of history in Melbourne uh, in 1916. And so I hope a reader might then understand that what is fiction and what isn't fiction might not matter as much as what I'm going to do in response to it.
1: Yeah. Honestly, like I mentioned in the intro, writers are so inspiring to me because I think there's an element of a lot of us can think certain things but not all of us can articulate it in a way that's manageable for another person to read let alone marketable and interesting like your book can you tell us a little bit about the process of writing and what that looks like for you I can. It's a mess. (laughs) That makes me feel better. Go on.
0: I wish. Let me let you in on a little joke is when I told you that I couldn't let go of Scarlet and Mm -hmm. I just kept writing this book in inverted commas, I'm Mm. I'm signaling inverted commas. I never once thought I would have the concentration span or the ability to write a whole book. Mm. And so I just tricked myself. I set aside every Friday to write. I never let anything else get in my way of that. And I wrote little scenes and vignettes as I imagined them mm. all out of chronological order. Um, and before I knew it, <laughs> I had enough that pushed me forward to do things like apply for competitions or mm. take it to a lecturer or a writer and ask for some advice so I did trick myself in that strategy mm. but the one thing that remained constant was I always put the time in it is hard work it's not romantic it's not always fun it doesn't just explode onto the page although there were times when it did and that felt incredible mm. but it was mostly about the discipline of every Friday come what may kind of nine till nine sit down and write and
1: see nine till nine I would have little breaks. There were plenty of Cosmos after (laughs) 7pm. That was my best writing. (laughs) It always is. That's actually so interesting and so important. Consistency. I think a lot of creatives uh, appeal to the creative industry because of the flexibility. But what we're learning is there does need to be a lot of routine and a lot of structure for us to get the best out of us as creatives. Now... The interesting thing I want to talk about, uh, there's so many interesting things, but you mentioned that you first got the hunger by writing an intro chapter. Can I ask, is that intro chapter the same intro chapter that made it into this book or are there changes?
0: It is. And the only changes really are just the editing process, you know, making it sharper and, and, you know, better flowing. But yeah, not the prologue.
1: Yep, But the first First chapter
0: chapter is the first chapter. Yeah.
1: I love that. Now, given that this book does go, I guess, back and forth in time in different directions, that sounds very difficult to plan. Or was it easy because of that process that you set up where you were just writing that nine to nine and then it kind of all came together? Or, I mean, selfishly, I just want to know how to write a book, really. I wish I had answers (laughs) for you. Um, The reason that I wrote it in scenes and vignettes
0: is because I am not a plotter. I never knew what was going to happen. I never knew. And so to make up for what I saw as a problem, Mm. not being able to plan it out, structure it and write to my plotting, um, I did struggle a lot with making sure the chronology actually worked. So I've actually painted a whole wall in my house as a blackboard, um, and I had it all written on there in chalk so I could rub it out um, and move it around. And at different degrees or stages of the novel, it was more problematic than at others. Mm. Um, So I I just wish I could tell you that I now know what to do next time, but I don't. I'm starting from (laughs) scratch
1: again. (laughs) I love... That It makes, I'm sure, a lot of young artists realise that, you know, a lot of successful people still have moments where they're second-guessing things and and just being a bit flexible and creative. Now, The Great Undoing, obviously, you said you started writing in 2018, pre-pandemic. And it is, you know, a a story that is kind of near future, post-COVID and traces of, you know, racist policing and immigrating systems – The thing that is scary to me is that you started writing it in 2018. Come 2020, we obviously have a pandemic. We also have the rise of Black Lives Matter after the unfortunate death of George Floyd. As a writer who's written this particular book, what did that moment of time feel like when everything was unfolding and the similarities between your book? Were you thinking am I a prophet or were you thinking like there's ways you would have approached the story differently or anything like that?
0: Yeah, look, you're just triggering me back to the confusion and trauma (laughs) of what (laughs) was And look, I never actually thought I was a prophet, but there were definite, because I'm not that self-absorbed, but (laughs) there were, I've actually got a list of all the things I wrote that come true and my children actually begged me to take two of them out. Because they said, we, and I'll leave, the, I don't want to give spoilers, mm-hmm. because they're like, Mum, if this happens, like, you're going to die. Like, that's yep. terrible. Um, but I think the truth, the, the honest answer to your question is that none of those things are actually new. Yeah. Um, it is awful. And I don't say they're not new to diminish them or minimise how disorienting and challenging they are. But, yeah, for First Nations people on this continent they dealt with environmental Mm. disaster, catastrophe, and a people stepping in who never asked Mm. or listened um, to those who were experienced and Mm. had a long history of tilling this soil and providing for families. And so I guess watching that all play out again, you know, Uh, In all the things that you mentioned, all Mm. those things like pandemic, like environment, like climate, um, like policing. It was in no way surprising to Mm. me. It's not like you pulled it out of thin air. Not at all. It was depressing, though. It was upsetting. It was genuinely traumatizing to watch these things just constantly play out. But it's another reason why I played with time Mm. the way I did yeah. To try to deliver that ongoingness yeah. of the world and of people's behaviours, yeah. um, in the hope that we might listen.
1: I'm yes, all of that. I am as you're speaking, and I often get this with guests. I'll be listening and my mind is going in so many different directions where I'm absorbing what you're saying and just getting distracted by how interesting I'm finding it. This book to me, although it is fiction, I think it can play a role in education and you are a tutor as well. So does that kind of play into how you've chosen to articulate certain things and positions certain things or was it just a, I I don't want to use the word joy because like you said it is triggering but there is I guess a way that people can consume this information that is a bit more digestible because it's a book. I think that's so true. Uh, There will be readers
0: who'll need to um, step back from the truth of it Mm. and I Just so you know, I'm a huge fan of those readers. I'm really Mm. thrilled for a reader to come in to this book and just take it at face value and enjoy a rollicking good tale Mm. and a bit of a romance on the side. Um, What I hope is that every reader might read something that makes them see a person or an ideology or a concept from a different point of view and that they might ask questions. Mm. And I think that's why I tried to structure it the way I did, Mm. um, was in the hope that they might look at it from a different point of view.
1: Yeah. And obviously before a book is published and released to the wider audience, there's a lot of editing that would go through this process. How did you find that? process in a way that like there were obviously certain things I'm sure like all writers where you would be very stern on keeping it in and wording it that way were there areas in the book or themes that you kind of felt needed to be changed for a certain way or other people felt like they needed to change it to be something that is marketable or was the process pretty you had a strong sense of governance over it?
0: Yeah, I, the whole editing process was an utter joy to me. Mm. I loved every second of it. Um, Robert Watkins at Ultimo Press did my first two kind of big structural edits with mm. me. And it was just so much fun. He gave me complete governance over decision making, mm. but I would be a fool too ignore experts um, if they pointed out things that I needed to consider. But no, I would say that in general I'm proud and happy with every word, every line, every sentence. Um, I love the – they actually also uh, hired a First Nations editor, Ellen O'Brien, to go through the copy edit with me. Um, She was wonderful. I loved it actually when there were times she didn't understand something. Mm. Um, and would push back on things because again, she's a first nation reader. She's an excellent reader. And I was really keen to hear where I Mm -hmm. haven't, uh, conveyed something well enough. So again, I think it, if you trust the people you're working with, you're really happy to get pushed back. But in reality, yeah, everything that's there now is in the spirit of Mm -hmm. what was there in the beginning.
1: Yeah. And I'm just looking at the cover now. It's very well designed. I love it. But I am noticing a remarkable achievement, Tony Birch. Now, he is an incredible writer and carries a lot of weight in the industry. What does a comment like that and someone of their weight feel like to have endorsed your book? I understand
0: where you're going with that question, and it absolutely is overwhelming and almost like an out of body experience Mm. that just it just doesn't feel real but I was so so lucky to have been at a master class with Tony for a week at Varuna and there were only three of us in that class and so we really got to spend good time with him get to know him and in some ways Tony is less of an idol to me now and more of a real person Mm. and that actually makes my Uh, appreciation of his words even uh, more deeply felt. Yeah. I guess so there is the hero worship, (laughs) but there's also the Tony, My uh, probably my friend is a little overstating things, but my colleague perhaps, like a respected colleague. And so I did think there is a praise um, page when you first open up my book. And when I saw it, I did think I might be able to just die happy right now. (laughs) So just leave it in the boxes. No one else needs to read it. I'll just die happy.
1: (laughs) I love that. And I'm sure that does feel wonderful. But I know that this book is going to be a huge success. And I think it's such a beautiful and powerful position for it to hold and space to take up because, like I mentioned, it grabs readers of different, I guess, environments and different interests. But it's also a modern day artifact in a way as well, because it's coming from not only your voice and your way of writing, but the way that it does comment on real histories in a way that is just so marketable and and so a page turner nonetheless but I just I'm getting lost for words again because I just keep thinking about all of these and the thing I guess I am struggling with is how to talk about this book without giving too much away because there is just so many things that happen in this book that are just themes and experiences that as mob we all have faced or will face or have trauma from our ancestors experiencing things like that and you did mention earlier in the conversation that you were quite triggered by a lot of the themes that were coming up or is it quite an emotional experience for someone like yourself and I know a lot of creatives we tend to not shy away from that vulnerability of bringing in that theme and 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 those emotions and the history how do you kind of grapple with putting something like this out into the universe and your own mental health
0: well the first thing is to make sure it's labeled fiction (laughs) very important um That is a really difficult question to answer and I think there's probably five or six different answers depending on the day Mm. (laughs) and what I'm going through on the day. But I would say that this story is predicated on a discovery of my own, Mm. of discovering truth about my own great-grandfather, William Olive, Mm. And what doors that opened up to me as a person and an understanding of the way I move and live in the world, uh, an understanding of perhaps why I'm obsessed with the things I was obsessed by as if he was reaching through time and looking for Mm. a storyteller to uncover his stories. And so in that way, it felt really beautiful Mm. and meaningful and special to almost cooperate and collaborate with not just my great grandfather specifically, but all our ancestors and all the stories um, that are on this continent. And in that way, some of the chapters in there that are actually really my own diary chapters Mm. was cathartic. And I hate saying that because it makes it sound like it was something to be felt, cried about and gotten over. And it's Mm -hmm. not. Yeah. none of this ever gets gotten over Over. but there's a way of grappling with it in the beauty of it as well because the beauty of our survival Mm. and the beauty of our thriving and resistance despite these stories our like black hope in Australia Mm. I think is one of my most precious anchors that uh, we have hope for the future because we care for each other in family and kinship Mm. and we know how incredible we are and so in that way it was also cathartic to uncover Mm. all these voices and all these truths and all these connections because we are all connected yeah and if other people don't value that they really are the poorer for it even though our people tend to suffer more um we are richer
1: for knowing these truths Mm. i i Love that. And that's so much to think about. This chat, I think, will give readers or listeners, um, hopefully converting to readers, enough insight to pick up this book. And I think your words and your unique perspective will keep the pages turning. Now, we are running out of time, but I know that this book is absolutely going to convert listeners into readers, But to send out the show, can you give us a little taste of what you've written? I am just going to read you two paragraphs.
0: We're only 28 pages in. There's no major spoilers, (laughs) and this is Scarlett speaking. I have spent my adult life sifting through archives that claim to be true, but history is no more credible than any other genre. I do my best to set personal agendas aside and search for evidence to ensure that history is not represented by too few voices. I am diligent and discerning but to discern Dylan challenges me at every turn because I cannot nail down his genre and genre constructs meaning. Right now, he is poetic fan fiction with the potential to veer into dystopian short story. He feels like magical realism with a dose of suspense, but he is also romance and mystery and, worse still, fantasy. All fantasy relies upon illusion and misdirection. Is he sugary, filtered, celluloid fantasy? or sinister settler myth fantasy.
1: Wow. Sounds like my dating life. (laughs) 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 Just kidding. (laughs) What a way to send out this interview because I think that is such a beautiful way of articulating how something can be taking parts of history in a real sense and bringing it into this beautiful narrative about Scarlet and and just the power within that. So thank you so much for joining us on this show. If people do want to get in touch with you, where can they find you? You can go to my website, www.sharlenealsup.com. Love that. And do you have Instagram or anything online? I do. And it's all on that website. You can Amazing. find me. So as well as your website, can you tell us when the book launches and where we can find it? It'll be in stores January 31st,
0: but you can come to my launch at Avid Reader on February 9th, go to their website. I'm pretty sure there's still tickets available, but if you're listening from Melbourne or you're going to be travelling to Melbourne, I've got another launch there on February 12th through the Wheeler Centre.
1: Love that and love Avid Reader. I think what a beautiful place to have it, particularly on Boundary Street. Well, thank you so much, Sis, for joining us. This has been an incredible chat. I cannot wait to continue reading this book. I am just so grateful that you've been able to not only bring this book out in a way that's so powerful, but also just sense of achieving something when you least expect it. I think that's the beautiful takeaway from me as well. I think that's something that we can all take away, that you can achieve things when you least expect it. So thanks so much, Sis Thanks for having me. And that is another episode of Let's Talk Black Arts I am just week after week mesmerised by our guests and and the stories that they do share, but we will be back next week with another incredible guest and another incredible conversation. Until then, stay deadly.
0: No more whispering in our mind Let's talk Monday to Friday at 9am on AAA Murray Country, the National Indigenous Radio Service and iHeartRadio. You can catch up on triplea.org.au. proudly supported by the Community Broadcast Foundation.